Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are back in the podcast studio and I've got a special guest for our audience, as is kind of, I think, the way we do things now because of the pandemic and technology coming to us all the way from Texas via Zoom into the Project Purple podcast studio that I'm sitting in, as you can see, that you will be able hopefully to see this in video, author of The Badass Advocate, Becoming the Champion Your Seriously Ill Loved One Deserves, Aaron Gallian. Aaron, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you for having me. And, I, you know, I'm from Philadelphia originally. So for you to say I'm all the way in Texas makes me laugh because I'm like, who? Who's in Texas? Oh, that's right. Me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, as we, uh, I, I always, I have a lot of these corny sayings now that we're over 200 episodes here, over four years of this podcast. Um, and I always kind of have this saying, I say full disclosure. And, and I always love sharing how I meet my guests because I, I think it, the power of social media right now could be negative, but we're not going to go down that path. I always try to find the positive in everything. And and one thing that uh, social media has done is it it really has allowed us here at Project Purple and me in particular with this podcast to really connect with so many amazing people. And, And you're one of those connections via social media from another guest, another author, Cynthia Hayes, um, you know, who we've had on a couple times and we're continuing a series with her. And uh, Cynthia had actually referred you to us and um, you and I kind of hit it off pretty quick. And I'm excited mm-hmm. to have you on uh, to talk about your book and everything that you've done. Um, but also this is kind of exciting. I know we, we kind of talked before we hit record on both ends. This is hopefully the first time we actually put out a, a vlog of our, our of our podcast, a video. And you don't know this, Aaron, but I've been saying this for the last four years. I do this thing in air quotes and I always say if you if you if we had a video, you could see my air quotes going up here. <laughs> and now hopefully the audience will be able to see my air quotes. Uh not that they want to see me doing air quotes, but uh it's kind of exciting for us uh for twofold. So as we always do with our podcast, uh, our first segment is really our guest opportunity to share, like what brings them to us today. And I always kind of tell our guests, you know, you can go as far back as you want. You can say as high level as you want. I've got some great questions, I hope, because uh, I just went through and, and didn't read your book, but I got it on audiobook because it is on audiobook and was able to listen to it over the last uh, couple of days. Um, but with that, I want to hand this over to you to kind of share your background and what brings you here today. Okay, great. Well, I hope you're not sick of my voice since you just listened to me talk for your entire weekend. So you're going to hear some more. So my background, actually, my story starts back in 1997. And my father, Mike, was a wonderful dad. So I grew up outside of Philadelphia, like I said, kind of near Villanova University in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania. And I was one of three children. And I grew up really with this idyllic childhood, just a loving family. We weren't perfect, but we certainly had a happy home. And my dad was really the heart of that home. He made us laugh. He was silly. He loved to travel and just create memories with his wife and children. In 1997, my father was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. At the time, I was a college student. And I wasn't around. And over a 10-month period, my father's health quickly declined. 
And in June of 1997, he ended up passing away at the age of 53. So, you know, I was 20 at the time, 53 seemed old, but not that old. I knew he was young, but now that I'm 45, I'm like, wow, that's really young. And, you know, obviously that left a big hole in my family because we just loved him and he was a great dad. Fast forward 20 years and my sister, Megan, this was in 2017, she started to get mouth sores. It was really odd. She had always been healthy. As an adult, she never took a sick day. I mean, I take probably one or two a year, right? Because of colds. She was just a former collegiate athlete. She was always active and stayed healthy. And so for her to get these mouth sores and she started to lose weight was really kind of odd, but she was okay. She was feeling besides the mouth sores and the loss of weight, which at that time she was like, Hey, I lost a couple extra pounds. You know, this is actually not so bad, but over time she kept losing weight. And one night she woke up and was having a hard time breathing. She took herself to the hospital because she has two young girls, didn't want to wake them up in the middle of the night. And they found out that she had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as well. Really ironic. Um, Supposedly not connected to my father as far as we know, but to be determined, right? And that explained some of her issues, but not the breathing issue. And a day or two later, after many tests, they found out that she also had a lung disease called bronchiolitis obliterans. It's very rare. It's very aggressive. So what happened was she had the cancer probably for a year, but didn't know it. And then that caused an autoimmune disease, which caused those mouth sores. And the autoimmune disease, of course, attacked her body and caused a lung disease. So over that time, my sister had to go through chemo treatments and she lost weight even more. She lost her hair and they couldn't address the lung disease because the medications and how they would treat that would contradict with the, the chemotherapy treatments. So we had to skip that. And that's unfortunate because that just meant that this aggressive lung disease disease had about five or six more months to continue to attack her body. And over time, she just really started to get weak and weaker. So she went from this very active mom who loved to work out and worked full time to someone who was a very frail patient who couldn't even walk to the bathroom without an oxygen machine. During this time, I lived still in Texas and she lived in South Carolina. And so I would go back and forth. I had a two-year-old. So when I could, I have a family of my own. um, I would travel and go see my sister. We were always best friends. And so this was heartbreaking. Thankfully, my mom and my brother live around the corner. So they were able to help her and her husband and her girls. Well, As background, I have been in the pharmaceutical industry for my entire career, so now over 20 years. And I used that knowledge, that experience, to help advocate for my sister. I couldn't be her full-time caregiver because I live so far away. My mom did a lot of the caregiving because she's retired. And then, of course, her husband and my brother would also help out. So what I did was, what I figured out was that all these things that I had learned over the years of being in pharmaceutical sales... And now I train pharmaceutical reps how to speak to physicians. This knowledge, this experience really came in handy because I was comfortable being in that setting. I was comfortable asking questions. I knew maybe not anything about her disease. It was new to me, but I knew how to form questions so I could ask better questions and get better information. 
So we figured out these things along the way as a family. Some I figured out for my career, but other things we figured out on the fly and also learned from my father's illness, right? So we learned how to even be better advocates for my sister, Megan. And that's really what led me to write the book. Um, My sister, unfortunately, did pass away in October of 2018. She was only 47 years old. And she, this was obviously heartbreaking because her girls are really young. And obviously she was young and had a lot of life that she wanted to live. In honor of her uh, and just her memory and just wanting to honor who she was and my love for her, I wrote the book, Badass Advocate, so I could help other families. You know, I'm still even grieving even um, now, and I will probably never stop grieving my sister because she's my favorite person in the world. Sorry to anyone else who I also love, but Megan tops the cake there. And so I just want to kind of get through life by helping others. And that's the only way I know how, honestly. Well, you know, I've listened to the book and uh, when I heard uh, the acknowledgments, uh, I got teary eyed and uh, Mm -hmm. I appreciate you sharing your story there because uh, I just know from listening to the acknowledgments, how important all the people in your life, in particular your family and your sister and your dad um, and going through a, a very similar experience, not writing a book, but you know, having a loved one that's so important to us in our lives, um, how that feels, right? Um, but it's pretty special. So thank you for sharing. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I know that your dad and sister are probably cheering from above so loud and seeing all the, the great work you're doing in their memory. Um, you know, we all go through really crappy things in our life. Um, and that's a given, right? And, and I, I have a saying, it's not about being on top, but how you react when you get knocked down. And uh, I'm always um, pretty amazed by how people rebound. And, and you know, with, with the place we are in a world right now, with so many things, I mean, there's so many things, right? Like that we can point to as a negative. But if we can find the positives, right? We can find you know, faith and humanity and, and so many people doing so many great things. I think if we can find ways to shine and highlight all those great things that are happening in a, in a really dark time, it's it's pretty amazing. So um, I commend you for doing all you're doing and uh, thanks for sharing your story with our audience. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's pretty much two paths you can go down when you lose someone. Either you can really just stay within and go to a dark place. And that's easy. That's, we can all do that because it is so painful and I don't blame anyone for doing that or judge them. Or you can take that pain and try and help others through whatever lessons you learn because we all learn something different. And it's really the only, I, I know that my dad and my sister would want me to be happy. Would want all of us to, that would break their hearts. Um, so this is the way I know how, and it's really rewarding to give other families advice who are just thrown into this terrible situation. They have someone that they love. They don't know what to do. No one preps for being a caregiver or a patient advocate. You're just kind of thrown in. And if you've had experience, unfortunately, then you're a little more prepared. But if you're not, if you've never had a sick loved one, you're like, I don't even know what to do. This is overwhelming and it's scary and I'm afraid and I'm sad or I'm angry, all these emotions. So I'm hoping I can help some to kind of 
bypass all that beginning stuff and jump right ahead to where we were so you can have the information you need to be a badass advocate. And it's so powerful because I know we, we've talked about various topics on this, Aaron, but and you know in your experience and, and what you're doing, I'm sure you've run into this, people don't like talking about this stuff, like getting sick, right? And how to handle, like how do you manage someone with a terminal cancer diagnosis? Like we don't, you don't go to cocktail parties and be like, Hey, like this is, you know, you're going to cocktail parties. Most people go there and they brag like, Hey, I, I just ran a marathon. You know, I'm just using that as an example. Cause we do a lot of marathons or I just bought a Tesla. Right. Or, Hey, uh, you know, I just got a new job promotion or, you know, Jimmy just, you know, hit a home run in his little league game. It's not like, Hey, my mom just got this terminal diagnosis. Like, this is what I'm doing. Um, these are mm -hmm. the things that I'm doing to cope with it. Or, you know, we met this, uh, you know, person that shared this, this great idea on how to deal with this, this awful thing. And, but, you know, we could go down this rabbit hole of like, you, you know, and I think there's a bit of psychological, psychological game here, you know, because people don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's a reality of that. Right. And, and sometimes it's better to face the reality up front or to be, I, I wouldn't say face reality, but be prepared, right? Like have these things just like. You know, I, I think if we can shift the mindset, because this a lot of this is mental, right? If we can shift that mindset, and we're not saying that everyone's going to go down this path. That's not not what we're saying. But it's just like if you carry like uh, jumper cables in your car, right? Like you don't wish that you can't start your car every day, but you're prepared, right? Like you have jumper cables. Um, my son just got his driver's license we, uh, about six seven months ago. We were able to find a used car for him, so. We, we put like the pack in there for God forbid, if, if you lose it, if uh, you get a flat, you got, you know, fix a flat, you got your jack. If you battery goes out, you got jumper cables. Now they sell these really cool, you know, battery boosters. You don't even need a jumper. You know, you can just hook the little battery up and it'll pop your, it'll, you know, give enough juice for the battery to get home. Right. And then you've got a first aid kit. Right. So if maybe if we think about this from that standpoint, like just from a preparedness standpoint to have these resources mm -hmm. in your, in your bookshelf, so that if that does happen to you, if you unfortunately have to go down this road that we don't wish anyone, but unless, but at least you have these resources. Right. And I think maybe if we change that mindset a bit, you know, with, with the general public that, you know, it's better to be prepared than to not be prepared. I love that analogy. I've never heard anyone give the analogy to the car. And I think that's very clear because everyone can relate to that, at least if you're over the age of 16, yeah. <laughs> right? And it reminded me of a quote that's actually in my book by Rosalind Carter, the former first lady. And she says, there are only four kinds of people in the world. Those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers and those who will need a caregiver. So you're right. We won't all be a caregiver or a patient advocate. And sometimes I use those interchangeably. Sometimes they're different. And I can explain that. But we all need to be prepared for this because most likely it's going to touch us in some way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can also be a badass advocate for yourself, even if you're not seriously ill. It has changed my mindset with just going to the doctor and not getting an answer about something that's more simple. You know, standing yeah. up for yourself, asking the hard questions. It doesn't even mean that you're rude or you're aggressive. That's not what this is about. This is about having a voice for yourself or someone else and figuring out strategies that you can use to make 
their health journey the best that it can be. Sometimes it is terminal and it's awful. Like my sister's journey was terrible. My goal wasn't to cure her because I don't have that ability. Nobody had that ability. What I could do is make it, or at least try to make it the best journey for her that it could be. It's powerful. Something that you just said, and and now I want to go into one of the questions that I had from listening to the book. And and so staying on that car analogy, this is the other. So and and we in to your point, we can't right, we can't force people to do this, right? Like this is something that you can't force, and it is a little bit of a mind shift, you know, mental mind shift change that we have to have. But let's assume you're the type of person who has a car, you don't have all these things, but guess what? You have AAA, which is part of your network. And I know you talked a lot in your book about network. So I wanted to bring that up because I think that's a great stepping point uh, to get dive into the little bit of the book because I think people can get very overwhelmed very quick, right? Especially with a cancer diagnosis. And mm-hmm. to your point, as you just said, you know that that quote from Mrs. Carter was amazing because. For our audience to say at home, again, we're not saying like you're going to go down this path. You're not going to get a terminal cancer, but you may be part of the family unit or family friends or neighbors or someone in your PTO that potentially is going to go through this and having a network, you know, you're going to be in that network. So I kind of want to talk about that network because I know yeah. you you talk a lot about that. And, and that is really key. That is really critical, critical. I think that's yeah. like the biggest piece. I agree. And that's why I have it as the number one tip that I give in the book is create a support team. And that looks different for everyone, every patient, every family, not everyone grew up the way that I grew up. And I know I was fortunate. I'm also unfortunate. I lost two people within my little family unit, but we all have different life experiences. In this case, with your health journey, you want to have people supporting you in different ways. So from the perspective of the patient, you should always have at least one person that's your caregiver that is there to take care of you. Even if you're feeling good today, you may not feel good down the line and you need someone to help you. And sometimes it's natural. It could be your spouse or parent, depending on your age or your family dynamic. But sometimes it's not that obvious. You know, maybe you're single and you don't live near your family. So who can be that person that you can rely on to come over and help you when you're really nauseous from the chemotherapy or you're just not feeling well mentally that day, or you have a chemo therapy treatment the next day and you're struggling with what's to come, you know, it's scary and you need someone. So that's your first layer, but you need more than that. And so does the caregiver. So this is why I talk about how you create this network of people. And I think sometimes, especially caregivers feel like everything has to fall on their shoulders or if they don't even want that, sometimes it does naturally. We need to understand that a lot of people usually do want to help. They just don't know how. And it doesn't mean that they take over your role or they do everything you're doing. It means figure out ways that they can support that maybe are smaller tasks, but that are easy. So, for example, I'm just making this up. Let's say a friend of mine in the neighborhood was sick. I'm not going to be her primary caregiver. Her her husband probably is, right? Maybe she has young kids like mine. Maybe I can drive her son to soccer practice every Friday afternoon because I'm taking my kid anyway. And that relieves that, not that the child's a burden, but that task, so maybe burden's not the right word, task 
off of her and her husband's shoulders, right? That's an easy one. How about if they have a dog or you have a dog, you know, or a pet that needs to be taken care of, or someone can come over and unload the dishwasher because they're, they're retired or maybe they're a stay-at-home mom. I mean, how can you tap into these people in your life and ask them to do little tasks that help the caregiver day in and day out? And it, again, it doesn't mean that they have to be over your house every day or doing these things every day. Maybe it's one a week, once a month, whatever it is you need, start kind of delegating these things to other people. Because how many times have we heard someone say, I want to help so-and-so, I just don't know what to do. And I don't want to overstep my boundaries or I don't want to, you know, be no seem like I'm being nosy. So people want to help, let them help, but be very clear. And so I equate a lot of things to the, in the book to work. And I think that's like my environment with work. And I know your family and your friends aren't your colleagues. It's a little different. You're not their boss. So don't treat them like they're your employees, treat them as a friend or family member, but be very clear about what your needs are and then ask them, you know, is any of these things, are they, are you comfortable with that? Or is there anything that you feel like you could do? And it's easier for the caregiver to ask these questions than the patient because you're not doing it for you. I could ask anyone to do something for my sister. I would have no problem doing that because I'm advocating for her. And that's always in the back of my mind, asking someone to do something for me, I would feel uncomfortable. So rely on someone else to do that. So I loved, uh, you had a, a great things there, but there's, there's a couple things that I love from the book. So that just came to mind here as we talk through this is you mentioned open-end questions a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but a few times. And I, I go back to what you just said in terms of, you know, and this is something that is so common here at Project Purple. We get a, so many requests, like typically a couple times a week where people call in because we have a free blanket program. And so people can order blankets for people battling and they'll say, what's the best thing I can do for someone battling pancreatic cancer? And and I think people kind of overthink this, right? Like they think, and, and I get it, um, you know, someone gets diagnosed with a with a terminal cancer or a cancer diagnosis, and then people think, and I don't know, maybe mentally people think, I wouldn't say it's a competition, like you gotta outdo, you know, the neighbor who's sending over like a large fruit basket, you gotta send a bigger one. Um, but I, I you know, people tend to overthink that, I feel like yeah. what to do. But to your mm -hmm. point, as you say, like asking open-end questions. So as, as, a, as a family member or as that caregiver, would you say then, Aaron, that it's okay to ask the patient an open-end question? Like what's the best thing that oh, yeah. I can do for you? Yes, and also brainstorm together. So I talk about this in the book too, like mind mapping, you can do it any way you want, but you start to just jot down ideas so let's say it was, you're not the spouse, right? Because if you're the spouse, you probably know how, how you need help in your, with your family. But let's say it's your friend or your sibling and say, okay, so I want people to come in and help. How, what are things that we can list out that maybe we can ask your friends or your neighbors or whoever, our cousins that live down the street, how can we get them to kind of step in and what wouldn't be too invasive for you? So you know, we can also then let's just brainstorm, just get them going. And then we can rank them. Maybe only your best friend, you want to help you with these two things. Someone who you're not as comfortable with, you don't want them in the house every day. You're not feeling well. You don't look great. <laughs> you know, women especially are probably more vain about that. Yeah. So you don't want your neighbor who you're not that close with coming in every day. I get that. But maybe he or she can help out another way. Just picking up the mail and bringing it in. 
again, walking the dog, something simple, um, you know, helping with the lawn, something where they don't have to come into the house. So start listing out things and then, and then seeing who is willing to, to help out. And it doesn't have to be everything. It can just be a few things that kind of relieves that stress, that responsibility. And the other thing is that what I hear a lot from cancer survivors and fighters is that they want things to be as normal as possible. Mm-hmm. So if we we talk through this for a second, if, if, an, if an advocate is asking them to be part of the conversation, that's pretty normal, right? So by mm-hmm. saying, hey, we're going to do this and not having that person like you don't know, you don't know what's like, if you're, if you're dictating, you know, that that's not normal, but having a conversation saying, Hey, Aaron, like, I know you're not feeling well, this is, you know, this is, you know, you'll get through it, but like, Hey, what can, what, what do you think I, you know, we can do to, to help you? You know, I, I, you know, I know the lawn's not always your favorite, you know, and, you know, do you think we could just take, we'll take care of your lawn for you or take the garbage out every week or, you know, just leave the recycling by the door or whoever's doing that, you know, and we'll make sure it gets delivered to the, uh, the transfer station or something like that. And no matter what we're talking about, whether it's a support team or questions you're asking the provider or whatever it is, always involve the patient. I know there might be a scenario where the patient is so ill that they are not with it still do your best to try and include them. Mm-hmm. We made that mistake as a family. And so I am so passionate about making sure you don't forget that they are an adult that's there and needs your support. And even if they're a kid, I've heard that too, like include them as much as you can. And I know it's not the same as an adult, but it's their body, it's their health. And if you start treating them like they don't exist, that's really hard for the patient. And I haven't been a patient. I just know that's the feedback I've gotten from my sister and my dad. So Lesson learned, and I, I can understand why they would feel that way. I wouldn't want to be excluded either and treated like I was a baby. I'm an adult. So every step of the way, include them. And I, I love your examples about, you know, just taking out the trash. It can be simple things. It can be more complicated. If the patient can't come up with ideas, then you can start to brainstorm a little bit more and offer some ideas. And they may turn it down, and that's okay. But help them out if they get a little stuck. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want people in here helping me. Okay. So let's think outside the box. What do you not like to do? What don't you have the energy? Let's go down that road. Grocery shop or, you know, just run errands. I hate grocery shops. Most most people do. Yeah. I I think another thing that you mentioned in your book that I loved, and there's so many pieces, but um, you talked about strengths and weaknesses, right? And I think when you talked about like the roles of, you know, you had come up with roles in your book for each caregiver, right? Because I, I think we we come up with this like super Superman complex, right? Like, oh, I got to do everything like, you know, from a caregiver's perspective. And I can see where like the spouse probably feels that way. And so this also yeah. speaks to like, well, now this question just came up, staying on strengths and weaknesses, but do you also feel, and in your experience possibly, like sometimes the spouse especially in a, in a, in a spousal situation that that spouse needs to have a caregiver support system as well. Yes. And actually I think the support system is even more for them in a way, yeah. because I'll, I'll use my mom as an example. She, and I think there's a lot of moms that are like this. She's had taken care of my dad. She's very good at being the caregiver. She was, you know, stay at home mom in the eighties, So just picture that, what that looks like, you know, and she 
she loves to take care of us. Even to this day, we're, we're healthy adults, my brother and I, but she still wants to take care of everyone. And I think that's pretty typical in some families. That meant that she would try and take all the burden herself. And that's when you get caregiver fatigue or caregiver burnout, which is a common term in the medical mm-hmm. community. So you want to avoid that at all costs. So yes, the caregiving team or network is for the patient, but it's also for that caregiver, that primary caregiver. Mm-hmm. So they can delegate stuff. And really, if you know that someone else is really good at having those difficult conversations or asking questions, have them be the point person with the doctor. If they're willing to, if it's someone that's close, like if it was maybe my brother and he was the best at that, well then, and if he lived locally, then great, have him as much as possible have those conversations with the doctor. It may not be my mom that would be the best candidate for that, you know? So you have to think about that and also what role the patient wants them to play, of course. Correct. And then use those strengths to make a kick-ass team. It's just like a sports team. So then will we add to the roles, not to add to the to your book here, uh, mm-hmm. would you add then a caregiver support person or maybe that person that their role is like, let's say it's a spousal situation. And I was just, as you were speaking, I said, so, okay, what if, what if you have a kid, right? And he has cancer and now you have a mom or a dad as, as you know, is that primary caregiver? Um, would you advocate to say that if someone's like a BFF and, you know, let's say it's a mom, I'm, I'm going to stereotype here, but, you know, I think for this example, you know, and, and her best friend, like she's just going to take her to get her nails done once a week and just get out or go get a mani-pedi, you know, so that she can just have that alone time with her BFF. Um, or maybe it's just to go get tea and crumpets or tea and cookies or whatever, coffee, maybe it's a latte. Or we're on together, anything. Absolutely. So in the book, actually, what you're reminding me of is I have one that's called the director of delight. And this is the person that kind of lifts up that caregiving team. Now it could be one person like the mom in your scenario, Mm -hmm. or it could be in our scenario, she lifted all of us up. This was my cousin who was very close with my sister. She's just naturally that bright light. She has been her whole life. I always ask her, is there anyone in the world that doesn't like you? Cause you're so likable. Like you're just a lovable person and you're so sweet and kind. And so she would come and visit my sister. We all looked forward to her visits. She would take my sister's daughters out and take them for ice cream or whatever, take them shopping, doing something fun, which they kind of needed. They didn't have their mom and I wasn't around full time. And then of course my mom and my sister's husband are, ta- are focused on my sister. Cause she's so sick, you know? And of course they would take them to activities was it always fun stuff that they need to be doing as kids? Probably not. That probably fell off the radar sometimes because that wasn't priority. So it was nice for her to come in. And then with us, she could lift our spirits because she is so sweet. And we could talk about family and fun stuff and fun memories. And then she lifted my sister's spirits up because my sister loved for her to tell her all the things that were going on with the family and all the funny stories when they're kids. So she served that purpose for a lot of us. That may not be the the case for everyone. It may be more like yours. And that works too. Everyone needs that person to help lift their spirits because you have dark days and that's understandable. I love it. All right. So I'm going to, I got two questions that I want to stay on this network is, um, but the first one is, so we talked about like team and network, Mm -hmm. but let's say you have a family and this could be, it may not necessarily be because you don't have a lot of friends. That's not what I'm trying to say here, but let's say distance, right? You have a family that's located 
in your example, right? You were from afar. So if your team is limited, and, and I always, I know on our podcast, this is great, Aaron, because I always say things come full circle here. As, as you're watching, I'm drawing a circle here for our listeners <laughs> at home listening. But the survivors that we've had on the podcast, and we've had a lot of them, there's a lot of common themes that we've had. And one of them is no one does it alone, right? They talk about their brother, their wife, their kids, mm -hmm. the nurses, you know, again, this network of team. But let's, as let's assume here that for whatever reason, um, you know, it could be distance, it could be new to the area, or maybe people don't have a big family unit and they don't have a right. lot of friends. Right. If you had to limit the team and let's say, instead of going with like a network of seven, you only have a network of two or mm -hmm. a network of three. Mm -hmm. In your book, you mentioned a lot of roles. We've mentioned a couple here. In your experience, what do you think are maybe the two top things that you have to have? If we, if let's say we had a network of two, what would be the most important? Well, let me say this, that a bunch of the roles that I have, one person can own multiple ones. So I don't think that you just take on one role and you go, that's it. That's my only role. Like for example, one of them is the master of medication, right? Mm -hmm. Typically that falls on the main caregiver. And I like to call them that because that's the person that does the day-to-day -day work. If it's the spouse, the adult child, the parent, whoever it is. So that's the majority of these are going to fall on that person. Let's be honest. So they can handle that master medication. It's just getting organized. There are apps. I think a lot of this actually that needs to be done if there's a limited team is research and organization. So like you need to be prepared and that will help you through the day, throughout the day and throughout every day. So if you can use an app to keep track of medication, because that can be overwhelming. You don't need someone else to do it, but you can simplify it for yourself. If they're on a lot of meds, right? If they're taking one medication a day, okay, well, then that's not as big of a concern for you. My sister was on I don't know, probably 10 different medications and they were dosed at different times. That's very confusing. I was confused and I wasn't on the medication. Imagine what she felt like because her brain was a little fuzzy at times, right? Plus she's got stress and anxiety of what she's going through. So that main caregiver can handle a couple of things. I would say you really need to work as a unit, as a team, if it's two people, okay? So one is maybe the main caregiver, maybe you... It's going to be different for everyone. Maybe you split responsibilities, right? So you do shifts. Um, that's one way to do it. Or if one person is naturally the main caregiver because it's the spouse, it's the person that lives in the house, use that outside person to come in and support where you feel is needed most. Is it your kids? Is it with meals? Like can, for example, I don't have family that lives close by. My in-laws are, my husband's family lives 45 minutes. So that's an, close, but it's not super close, not down the street. So, I mean, I would hope that my girlfriends in the neighborhood maybe organize some meals, not every night, but like once a week I get, you know, my family gets a meal. That's something that, yes, you're tapping other people, but it's your one good friend who's organizing it for you. And that's your second person that you named. So just think of how you can support that family in little ways to make every day easier. Um, I was going to say something else that you, you brought up. What was it? 
was the other part of your question? Maybe it was open-ended questions. It was open-ended questions. That was early on. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I just- I want to tap into that if that's something that you're interested in, because that's an important part. Well, I, I think the, the open-ended questions to me, like I remember you talking about it, you know, from the doctor perspective, but then as here we talk, you know, I, I think that's, I mean, I think open-end questions are great. I mean, we're, I, I was raised in a sales environment and a sales culture and you, you, know. <laughs> you ask open-end questions, right? And, and when you were telling your background, you were saying like how you learned, you know, you were taught how to speak to doctors, right? And, and I think, and it's not like, now I'm trying to take my sales hat off. It's not like this persuasion process no. of persuading people, but if you really think about it, and th and this is kind of bigger picture, and, and we could go down this rabbit hole really quick, is like you know with doctors, you know I think they they are trained. There's very little emotion. Um, they're trained that way. They're very. Um, it's very black and white, right? They're in and out. They're they're trained to see X amount of people. Be very like almost not. I would say robotic, but somewhat robotic, right? But then when you ask those open-end questions, it's wild to see how they think, right? And, and but, but those open-end questions, and, th and this is where, I guess, in my experience, my personal experience, and then also, you know, doing this podcast and talking to so many people, and then, you know, 12 years of, of being in this space and hearing families' horror stories and, and, and also their wins, they're not all horror stories, but, you know, I, I, it always comes down to communication, a big piece of it, you know, in terms of how they communicate with doctors and how doctors communicate with them. And I'm not trying to throw doctors under the bus here. I mean, the system is broken, clearly. Um, but I think for us, Aaron, here, because we've gone through this and our experiences and our backgrounds, for the audience listening at home, if you're going through this, ask open-end questions because it'll it'll be yeah. amazing how those doors will open and and also how comfortable you will feel from asking those questions because I think you're going to get some answers. And yes. if you don't get the answers from asking an open-end question, ask another one. Don't give up. Yeah, don't give up. Okay, right? And I just remembered what I wanted to say, and it, it's related to open-ended questions and also the question you'd ask me about if you only have two people. Don't forget to tap into if you if the patient has insurance. Um, it doesn't always have to be free. I mean, I know free is great, right? Yep. So your friends and family, but you sometimes don't. That's a limited resource. Sometimes you can also look at if you belong to a local church or any community you belong to. Sometimes they have free services that they will come in and they'll support you. Or depending on your cancer, they may have a local charity that will come in and they will help you. Right. So that's one thing. But the other thing to do is to call the insurance company and ask them about what is covered. Because sometimes speaking of that conversation with physicians, they forget to tell you, or they fail to tell you whatever it is, but you might have resources that are actually covered by your insurance or it, you know, there might be a copay or something like mm -hmm. that, but don't forget to use that as well to your advantage because they're not always told. You're not always told. Correct. Sometimes it's forgotten. And there are some great resources. When it comes to asking questions, that's a great example. What resources can I use to help support my spouse during this time? What is covered under my insurance? Call the insurance company. Ask the physician that. If you can ask open questions, it really helps the physician to kind of give an open very open answer versus you controlling the conversation, which we tend to do when we're uncomfortable. 
a lot of times, especially in this country, we have this high regard for physicians, not a bad thing at all. They go through this education, they help heal the sick. So it's understandable. Don't let that stop you from asking hard questions or asking open-ended, which for some of us is completely uncomfortable because we feel like we're putting them on the spot. You have the right to ask questions and also always check with the patient. What do they want to ask? What do they want to know? Brainstorm beforehand. Questions on the fly are very hard for most people. Yeah. So it goes back to that preparation. And you just mentioned something and I had this note here. Um, You mentioned the app for medicine and, and, you know, I think that technology is an amazing thing and I'll go twofold into this. Just hearing you speak about like asking insurance, asking the hospital, but you mentioned charities, like clearly, you know, we haven't, this is not a project purple podcast about us, but you know, we have an aid program. So that might be a resource, you know, as part of the team. I know you talked a lot on the podcast and in, in one segment about, you know, having a fundraising person and, you know, there's organizations, we're not the only one, right? There's many organizations that can help with financial aid. Um, but then there's also other pieces. There's emotional support. There's, I, you know, we have a resource list of about 45 other groups throughout the country that provide some sort of support, either emotional or financial. And that ranges mm-hmm. from, you know, being able to provide groceries and cope, you know, assistance assistance with financial bills to, you know, providing, you know, assistance, getting to and from appointments, uh, air travel, hotel travel, you know, so there are a lot of resources. I think the one challenge within the cancer space is that it's so vast. And I know that's kind of like, you know, people get these diagnoses and it's like the deer in the headlights for the patient, but we're speaking, we're trying to speak here to advocates, right? Like the family members that can help, they can do these kinds of things. So even, you know, one of the roles might be the researcher in the sense of, you know, go out and find the groups that have programs and resources. And I know as technology advances, there potentially will become, and I know we've talked to a couple groups that are in development of apps that would potentially provide a one-stop shop for a patient for meal assistance, financial assistance, um, second opinions, access to other doctors, clinical, because that you know that's another piece, right? And I know you talk about in the book of having someone be that designated person that's actually listening to what the doctor's saying, and yes. then can digest that back to the patient and the and the caregiver and the the you know primary caregiver, um, and a, a slew of other things. So I I think technology is great when we use it for the good. Um, and I think in this case, potentially we might see in the next, you know, short term in the next couple of years, you know, potentially a, a one-stop sh- kind of fits all for caregiving, I hope. Um, Cause I've yeah. seen some stuff, which is really exciting. And the other piece too, you know, we haven't really talked about the hospitals. Um, you know, most major, if you're going to a major medical center, a uh, cancer center, I should say, they're going to have a slew of resources, you know, from therapy to massages to, you know, uh, financial assistance. Yeah. Dogs. The dogs. So ask for, if you're in the hospital or when you're in the hospital, if you're a patient and ask for palliative care. So if, if you have pancreatic cancer, you qualify for that. And they all have unlimited resources. They are fantastic. You also don't have to be hospitalized to take advantage of palliative care. So just so I'm clear, because I love to be the um, the cheerleader for palliative care, there's a lot of confusion as to what palliative care is. So palliative care is not hospice care. Those are different. Um, hospice care is end-of-life care, 
palliative care is more like taking care of the person as a whole. So not the disease necessarily, but the mental health, the physical health, um, spiritual health. So they can talk through anything that has, a lot of times there's social workers, but there's also doctors and nurses. And my sister's palliative care doctor actually wrote the foreword. We just loved her. And she helps as an example. She helped my sister talk through what was happening. And we would all leave the room and give my sister that privacy with her. And if my sister had pain, which she did, she could give her some morphine or some medications to help address that. So it's the mental anguish, physical pain, the spiritual pain, if you're spiritual, all of that they can address. So tap into them for sure. And then the other thing that you mentioned was the research. And I just want to go back to that for a second. We haven't talked about, we did talk about if we only have a team of two, but if you only have a team of two because your family and friends don't live close by, those people are not worthless. I just, just keep in mind, I advocated for my sister and I lived halfway across the country. Research is a great job to give someone who doesn't close back. The internet's all the same. So you can go at home, you know, you can be in Maine and I can be in Dallas and you can be doing research for me and we don't have to be anywhere close and you can still be a huge asset to the patient and the caregiver. So don't forget to tap into those people that don't live close by. They can definitely play a big role. So powerful. Aaron, I've got a couple questions. I got two questions left for you, but I've got one personal question that I, I'm, I okay. have written here. So I'm going to throw this curveball in here right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I know you mentioned, you know, going through your experience and, and I'm always just really curious uh, from a personal perspective, but what was the tipping point to write the book? Because and and this is, I, I'm always very curious. I mean, we all go through experiences, um, mm-hmm. you know, like this. But to go out, write a book, and to make this part of, you know, you're 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 hustling, you're out there, you're you're pushing this, you're you're putting out this this amazing positive message. If you look back, and this is a loaded question, and hindsight's always easy. Twenty twenty, was there? I, I'm just curious to know what was that tipping point to say like, Hey, I'm going to do this. Cause it, it, I'm sure it hasn't been easy. No, it, you know, it's so, okay. It's a good question. And no one's ever asked me this on a podcast. So I'll give you a little background because I'm in learning development. Sometimes my brain goes to certain places. So when I was pregnant with my child, I lived here in Dallas and I went and took CPR at the hospital. Right. And when my sister was sick, I remember sitting in the hospital with her and she didn't communicate a lot because she was on, you know, on oxygen. So she slept a lot and she didn't talk a lot because it exhausted her. And we just loved her attendings. They were awesome. And we had a great relationship with them. And the one doctor came in and, um, one time, actually let me back up. One time I had a nurse ask me if I was a medical professional because of the questions I was asking her. And so that was one of that little, you know, light bulb moments where I was like, I laughed. I was like, no, but I know how to ask good questions because this is what I do for a living. And I train others how to ask good questions but I don't, I didn't know anything about my sister's disease prior to her getting it. And so that was one thing. And then I spoke to one of her physicians because I started to think about, you know, I could train family members downstairs in the hospital while they're, you know, maybe their loved ones sleeping like my sister is now. And they could come downstairs for 30 minutes, 60 minutes. And I could train them on how to advocate their loved one because observing others, you know, you pass other families, you overhear conversations. I hear my own family. 
Sometimes the questions weren't great questions, or maybe they didn't know what to do. I could help others with that because it's it's something that took me 20 years of being in the pharmaceutical industry, but I could teach them that in 30 minutes, right? It's not that I'm a genius. I just have experience. That's all. That's the only difference between us. And so that started that. And then um, as a learning and development professional, I go and I get accredited in different workshops. And one of them talked about creating your own life vision. And I love this program and I teach it to other professionals. And so one of my visions, this was soon after my sister passed away, that I started working on my vision. And one of my visions was to honor my sister because I had just lost her. And how am I going to do that? And I thought, okay, well, I could do it in one hospital. Or if I write a book, I could touch way more families versus like 10, right? Or or even 50, if if that many would have show up. I don't know if they would. So that's really what how the book came about. And I I am self-published. I started writing the book um, the May after my sister died. She died in October of 2018. I started writing in May of 2019. And I wrote it in like, I think four months or so. I just, and I probably couldn't write it today because I would not have remembered. I have a terrible memory. So I'm glad that I did do that. It was part of therapy for me. And I just was really motivated to help others. That's just the thing that I kept thinking is, I've got to share the story. I've got to share what I know so I can help others. And then I feel like I'm just always going to honor my sister. So I read that vision still today to remind myself of why I do what I do. And I honestly, I really enjoy it. I love the feedback that I've gotten from families. I've had a friend that I work with say that she had her mom read the chapter on asking questions and her mom went in to advocate for her husband. And the the doctor said, I have to tell you, is at the end of the meeting. I have to tell you, you just asked really good questions. I was like, yes, that's what I'm hoping for. I help that family. Even if it's just a little bit, that makes me feel really good. So in a way it's kind of selfish, but. No, you know. no, but it's awesome. And, and, you know, the system is so big. Our audience is listening at home. I mean, if you don't understand this and I'm not trying to throw out a conspiracy, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is reality. <laughs> like the system is that big. And I think when systems get so big, there, there's not to say that the system doesn't work, but there are major, major challenges. And, and if we can find ways to help, and eventually this, if we can get enough of a groundswell, the system will change, right? It, it has no choice. Yeah. And so I, I think that's something like we need more people out here, but you know, the, the, the challenging p- piece to this is it, it can become very overwhelming, i.e. a cancer diagnosis. And then what yeah. do you do as we go back to the very beginning? No one ever thinks of this, but if you have that resource, you know, on your bookshelf or in the back of your car, you pull out that resource and you're prepared and you're ready to go. Like it's go time, right? And so it's just so powerful. I'm just like, you know, I asked that question because I'm always interested on why people do it. Um, You know, it's, we need more people like you in the world, Aaron. Uh, Hopefully, you know, they keep talking about, you know, the, the things that we have gone through that we don't want other people to, to go through. Right. And, and no. these are, you know, these are from the heart. These are, these aren't made up. Um, hopefully people listen. And to your point, if, if like your friend's mom, like that's a win, that's a W like, you know, that mm-hmm. could have been a completely 180 degree difference if she didn't read the chapter. 
and she mm-hmm. would have probably got bulldozed and you know because that's typically what and I'm not I'm not being offensive but that's what happens 99% of the time right a patient goes in and the doctor just bulldozes them over and that's what they're trained to do and you don't you don't know you don't yeah. know what to ask sometimes yeah. or you don't even know what an open ended question is whoever I never thought about questions till I got into sales it's not a difficult concept it's just one that when you hear it, you go, oh, I never thought of questions like that. I didn't know why I always ask closed-ended questions. You know, I'm using yeah. air quotes now. Look, it's <laughs> contagious. Um, so, you know, the other thing that you just made, reminded me of is the whole thing with the vision is that when I was at my sister's funeral, so my sister, I didn't talk about this, but she was really involved in the community. She had been involved in lacrosse. She got a scholarship to the University of Delaware. And so she was very passionate about lacrosse. And she brought it to different communities in the South, which is pretty cool. And actually around the world, she coached in London and Santa Barbara. And so she was such a calm, cool presence that her players just, she was beloved. They loved her. And so when we went to her funeral, um, there was lots of young women who showed up of different ages to honor coach Megan. And there were things that I found out about my sister after she died that I never knew awards that she got. She also was given awards and honored at different places, like mostly in the South from the influence that she made in the, in different communities. And that's amazing. Like that she was honored after she passed away. Of course, you kind of wish she was still alive to get that, but she was also honored when she was alive and recognized. My sister didn't, I was her best friend. She didn't share a lot of these things that she received when she was alive. I had no idea, except when people start asking Hey, Aaron, can you list out all these things that your sister got? And I had to get some things for my brother-in-law, for my mom. And I was like, she never told me this stuff. So I realized that, you know, life is short. And I know that for my dad and my sister. And you have a legacy that you can leave. And what is that legacy? And so I realized up until she passed away, I don't, I didn't know what my legacy would be. And I want my children to say, this is what my mom did and what, what's going to be my legacy and how am I going to help? And to me, a legacy is how you impact others. It's not about you and like, oh, you're the coolest person or you're great on social media or whatever it is. It's about how are you helping the world to be a better place? And we all have different ways we can do that. So I realized how she did it through coaching young girls and instilling these amazing lifelong qualities in them, like teamwork and perseverance and hard work. And that was her gift to all these young women. So how am I going to give back and influence other people? And and this is, this is what I got. (laughs) It's powerful stuff. Uh, I would end the podcast on that because that's pretty, that's pretty big, but I've got two questions left. My first one is, what do you think the steps are to becoming a badass advocate? Yeah. A lot of it has to do with mindset, to be honest. So if you have a sick loved one, constantly remind yourself that you would do anything for them to make their health journey the best that it can be. Remember, you're not there to cure them. If the journey doesn't, if it ends the way you don't want it to, that is not your fault. If you make mistakes along the way, that's not your fault. That's going to happen. Maybe you don't ask the question. You think of it later. You know, that's okay. We're all going to have, hopefully you don't, but a lot of us have do have regrets. Don't live in that space, okay? But while you're here, while your loved one's here, and hopefully they'll be here till they're 100, 
just keep in mind that you want them to have the best health, get the best health care that they can get while they're going through whatever they're going through. That's what it's about. That's what being a badass advocate is about. Don't be afraid to speak up. If you are bold and you're never afraid to speak up, also don't be a jerk. (laughs) That hurts too, by the way. We don't talk about that end as much, but if you're constantly rude and aggressive to healthcare professionals, they're humans too. It's not going to help your loved one. So there is a happy medium that you need to be in between. Be assertive, not aggressive. I love it. All right, my last question, and then we're going to share with our audience uh, where they can learn more and find your book and hopefully download it or order it. We have a tradition on the Project Purple podcast, and the last question is always, I I preface it, it's a loaded question. There's no right or wrong. Um, Typically, we ask our guests to define the term pancreatic cancer, but we're going to turn this around a little bit. And I want you, there's no right or wrong. This is your definition. What's your definition of a badass advocate? My definition of a badass advocate is someone who will go to lengths to advocate for the person that they love so much that needs their support and love. But also the second part of that is someone who realizes that they too are going through something difficult and they will give themselves some self-care and love and not forget that it's okay if they also are sad or frustrated or emotional, whatever your emotions are. So you're not superwoman or superman. You're there to support them in any way you can possible. And a lot of times it's delegating to other people and then also get the support and love you need because you're also going through a hard time. And I'm sorry. I love it. Aaron, for audience listening at home, where's the best place for them to learn more about the book, download the book, buy the book? Yeah. So I do have a website. It's very easy. It's called badassadvocate.com. So um, everything is there. And then of course I'm on Amazon because who isn't, right? And that's probably where you got my Audible book. So I have it in all forms, Kindle, paperback, Audible. So if you are willing to listen to my voice, I do have it on Audible. That was a fun experience. And um, yeah, so and I'm on all social media platforms and including TikTok because I was told I need to be on TikTok. So I have little videos on there, little clips, and I share some badass advocate tips. So if that's kind of your style and you like little videos, you can follow me there. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram and wherever else. And on all social, it's all the badass advocate. Or is it? It's all badass advocate. Yes, except for TikTok. Good question. TikTok, it is my name, Erin Gallian. And that's yes. spelled G A L Y E A N. Yes, gal, as in girl. That usually helps. It's 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 fitting because you live in Texas now, from Philly, though. That's right. <laughs> that is so right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Aaron. Uh, it's been uh, it's been awesome. Uh, I'm looking at the timer here. We're we're over an hour. I know we we didn't hit record right. We hit record right away, and we started to talk. But uh, this has been great. Um, as I said, when I asked you that question, it, it's just really powerful to me, and hopefully the audience listening at home. I guess selfishly for me, I, I'm just always 
super interested in, in why people do what they do when they're doing great things and you're doing a, an amazing thing. Um, as I've said, this system is so large and it, it, and there there are cracks in the system and and I'll preface it that way that you know that not 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 every doctor is bad, right? Um, but the more that we can share groups, individuals through their experiences with cancer, Regardless, you know, this isn't, and we didn't, we never mentioned pancreatic cancer, but this is so relevant to the people in our space, but it's relevant to everyone who's going through a cancer diagnosis. And the more that we can amplify, we can turn up the volume to like 12 on a 10 scale that people are aware of these things. And, and I go back to, you know, preparedness. I mean, you know, life is about being prepared for what gets thrown at you because you're never going to be on top. But if you have this book on your bookshelf or you read it, you know, the next time, hopefully you don't go through it, but maybe your neighbor or an, a distant family member, or let's say it is a, a close family member, you're prepared, you know what to do. Yeah. It's absolutely. so, I, I so, agree. so powerful. I've had people say that, that have read my book, just family friends, and then their mom got sick. And they said, I'm so glad I am actually prepared. And that wasn't the goal. They were just being kind to Correct. me, you know, and saying, oh, I want to read your book. So I, I agree with you. Preparation is a big part of it. Preparation and mindset is what it comes down to. And also know that you're not alone. There are people like you and me. There are also, we're not the only ones. There are tons of kind people that are out there. I know it's hard to believe that with the news, but there are, and they're willing to help you and give you advice or share, you know, kind of lead the path, lead the way, or just listen. Just find them. We need more of you, Aaron. Thank you for being on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and share this podcast to anyone who you think might find it of value. Thanks for listening. Until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Mm-hmm.